Today on Useful to God, Dr. James Spencer and me, Richard Beatty, are starting an audio docu-series on the culture war, how and why it started, and is there an end game in sight? James, you're just back from the National Religious Broadcasters Conference in Nashville. Was the culture war talked about very much during your time there? You know, uh, you hear sort of terminology that is reminiscent of the culture war is the way I would say it. I don't think people view us as being in an all-out culture war. Um, That language is uh, very seldom used anymore, as far as I can tell. But what I do hear a lot of is conversations about reclaiming Christian values or um, making sure that America gets back to its Christian roots or, you know, really making sure that we uh, overcome the, the deceptive forces of you name it, you know, wokeism or LGBTQ or those kind of things. And so I think that there is still an undertone of the idea that we are in a culture war, that the world culture that we're living in right now is more evidently discordant with what we might consider to be a biblical or Christian view of the world than what we were looking at, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so there is very much a a sense in which I think the culture war is alive in that respect. But I don't know that people are referring to it specifically as the culture war. Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I think it's interesting to to note when you listen to secular media, uh, the culture wars, when you're talking about what's going on in politics and everything else, are talked about ad nauseum. There's a famous line of poetry by William Butler Yeats that reads, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Well, the writer John Ronson called his new podcast, Things Fell Apart. Because in each episode, he goes back in time to a starting point in the culture wars, from abortion to critical race theory. I was curious to learn how things fell apart. And so I went back in history to find the origin stories, the pebbles thrown in the pond, creating the ripples. Take the episode about books in schools. Ronson introduces us to a church minister's wife in West Virginia named Alice Moore. In the 1970s, she noticed that new titles were being added to school reading lists. When Alice found out about this uh, new curriculum, she demanded that she would read every single book. I had all 325 books delivered to my house, and I started reading them. There's this great moment in the episode where you talk with her about a poem that she found offensive, and then you tracked down the man who wrote the poem. Right. One of the passages that she would cite a lot back then was this poem, which she said was unambiguously terrible. She says... Every day, people started making love on the bus, and the world has still not come to an end, but in a way, it has. But as she was reading the poem to me, I started to think, I've got a feeling that this poet feels the same way she does about spontaneous orgies breaking out on buses. Uh, And I said that to her, and she said, of course not, you know, that's not true. And I I tracked down the poet, uh, Roger McGough. The end of the poem is saying, well, you can't really just give way to your feelings without consequences, really. So it's a moral tale, really, for me. So that last line really is you and Alice agreeing. Well, yeah, yeah, very much so. What did Alice say when you brought that information back to her? Well, she was very charming about it and said, um, I I must thank Roger McGuff 50 years later for helping me bring the message of how terrible licentious behaviour is (laughs) to the people of West Virginia. But of course, what's really interesting is that Alice didn't really care about the intention. She is such a compelling character. She's delightful to listen to. She has this kind of infectious laugh 
And also, her views are what some would consider to be extreme. Well, the Bible says there are angels in heaven, and there is not a book in existence today that can be more firmly relied upon than the Bible. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw a report the other day where a woman was really frustrated that Christians would say that their rights are not granted to them by a government. They're granted to them by God. They're inalienable human rights granted to them by a creator. And I found it really interesting, for one, because, you know, uh, our our founding documents speak of it like that. And so even though I wouldn't agree that our founding documents were written from an explicitly Christian perspective, there is a theistic understanding that these rights that we were being given were not made up out of thin air, that they're actually given to us by a creator. Um. But I, I think that's a really interesting instance where we are seeing, um, for lack of a better term, um, secular um, media pushing in and trying to almost pick a fight with the religious side. Now, I think one other thing to say there is that, um, you know, this and we've talked about this before, but I, I think it's important to note the divide between the sacred and secular is actually um it's a handy way of referring, you know, it's an easy way to talk. It's almost a lazy way for us to, to describe it. But I think what we have to keep in mind is that what we normally refer to as the secular has deep theological beliefs. And those can be atheistic theological beliefs. Those are still theological beliefs. But my point is that uh, oftentimes the secular is almost a negative form of Christian theology in which a different story about God is being told. And that may be that God does not exist. That may be that God is, you know, different, looks different, um, acts different, relates to us different um, than what the Christian story would be. But in in any case, the what we usually refer to as the secular realm is actually telling a deeply theological story. Well, while you were gone, we aired the show that you and I did on Christian nationalism, and I it came out really good. We uh, we we made it a real useful to God uh, type of uh, type of program. Uh, as I was editing it, I thought about people I wanted to bring in uh, to this uh, to this conversation, and then I delved into the history of cultural conflicts beyond the Crusades, as far back. As the 1870s in Germany, there have been organized culture struggles. It was at that time a struggle between the German government and the Roman Catholic Church. Kulturkampf was a seven-year political conflict between 1872 and 1878, when the Catholic Church was led by Pope Pius IX, and the Kingdom of Prussia was led by Chancellor Otto van Bismarck. The conflict was primarily about education and religious appointments in the Prussian government, uh, or the Prussian kingdom at that point, which the conflict was whether or not Germany or Prussia was a Roman Catholic nation. Uh, sound, sound familiar? It really does. And I, I think it's a, another illustration. You know, we'll, we, I think we look back across history, what we're going to find, we find this, for instance, uh, during the Roman persecution of Christians during the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was on the wane. And one of the things that uh, was identified as the problem was that the Romans were no longer uh, honoring the traditional Roman gods. 
And by going back to those Roman gods, what you what what it created was an animosity toward those who refused to worship those Roman gods. And so the purging of Christians, um, yes, it was obviously hatred toward, toward Christians. And we have a biblical and theological framework to understand persecution and the hatred of those who follow Christ. But what we don't often recognize is that there are um, misthinking. There's misthinking beyond just we hate you because you're Christians. There's often a context that these things come in at. And so in uh, Prussia, Germany and Roman Catholic Church, you know, what you're looking at really is a, a bit of a power struggle who should or should not make um, political decisions, who should or should not be sovereign over the country. See something very similar in the French Revolution. Uh, where, uh, you know, the uh, church was getting what was deemed to be too much political clout. And so um, there was a movement to uh, press the church out of the political realm, um, which ultimately, um, depending on who you talk to, what historian you talk to, um, led to the church becoming uh, more of an opinion, the, the Christian faith becoming more of an opinion, as opposed to being something that was official, pointed to reality, was aligned with political structure, and could actually weigh in on political and moral matters. And so what I guess my point is this, um, in America, I think we're going through a very similar thing. I think much of what we've noted uh, re with regard to um, America being a Christian nation is actually more in line with what I would call civil religion. It's, uh, it's got some Christian-y sounding words, but Christ is not central to that civil religion. And so civil religion generally will allow uh, religious organizations and religious movements to move forward um, without a lot of resistance, so long as the um, religion of the state is not impeded. And, and I think that what we're coming to as we have these arguments about what is and what is not a Christian nation, what we're really arguing about is um, who is going to direct the um, affairs of the nation who is going to define what is sacred and uh, profane as part of this national project and uh, and who gets to set the rules of the game in, es in essence by which we play. Now, as we look at that, we have to recognize that no matter who sets the rules of the game, no matter who decides what is sacred and profane, Christians always have the opportunity to say that's not reality. And so we're going to obey regardless of the consequences. And so as we're having these discussions, what we're really dealing with is, I think, a democratic context in which Christians actually do have a say in how the how the nation functions, where the nation goes and its overall direction. And that is a unique uh, problem, a unique instantiation, probably, of the same problem um, that we see historically as we try to negotiate how what is it going to look like for America to be generally moral? What sort of order is it going to take on? Now, in today's version of the culture war, I was looking at the origins of the word. Yeah. Uh, there's a sociologist from the University of Virginia, John Davidson, who in 1991 wrote and published a paper titled Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America. So yet, if you go back to the 1970s, you got Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority, the NRA literature, uh, the John Birch Society, and even the concerns of a child psychologist in California who was so concerned that he started a media ministry called Focus on the Family, mainly out of concern about the assault 
on the traditional family. Dr. James Dobson first engaged the culture and increasingly led a religious and political fight for the soul of our nation. Does it matter how the current culture war began or who started it? The, the main thing is that is anyone called to engage in culture wars or are we called to engage the culture? I think it's a really difficult question. I would say, number one, we have to, you know, anytime we have historical precedent, we need to look at it. We need to look at it. We need not to assume that those who started the culture war were correct. And we also need to make sure that we understand that within the situation that they found themselves, perhaps these were faithful actions that are no longer right for us in this time. And so there's a range of decisions to be made when we start looking at this historical sort of culture war phenomenon that we're part of. And so we have to ask ourselves, uh, I think, just some basic questions. Is this advancing the gospel? You know, so you could arguably say, well, the New Testament calls us to engage the culture. And I, w- I would say it calls us not to be isolated from the culture, but it certainly um, and it certainly acknowledges that we are going to ultimately oppose the culture in certain ways. But I would also say that Paul, at various points, um, takes pains to make sure that we're not just poking the bear. And so I go to something like, you know, 1 Timothy 6.1. 1 Timothy 6.1 talks about um, the relationships between bondservants and masters. Now, you know, it seems clear to me that, you know, Paul, uh, if he had his druthers, he would not have had bondservants and masters. This was just a, a social and historical reality that he's working with as a minister of the gospel. We have those as well. And so what does he tell bondservants? He tells them to respect their masters. And he tells them that specifically, if they're Christian masters, they should do it all the more because now there is a brotherly love that connects these people. And that respect was to be shown in other places. He talks about it in the opposite direction. Masters are to be good to their servants. But the point is that our Christian love for one another is to transcend any sort of structural issue within the culture. And that is part of how we go about resisting the culture or engaging the culture think too often we think about it just in terms of we need this changed. But if we look at the overall thrust of the New Testament, I think what we have to realize is that the world is always going to be disordered. And so we have something like Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about tribulations and wars of rumors and wars and said that these things have to happen. Nations have to come against nations. Uh, In other words, there's going to be turmoil. There's going to be persecution. There are going to be problems. And so as we try to sort of hold back and and work within the structures that we have to restrain this evil or to bring disorder back into order, we just need not to lose sight of the fact that we want to make sure that we don't revile the gospel. In other words, uh, our primary role as Christians and as the church is to proclaim Christ. It is to point to and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do. And it's our unique contribution to a world that is broken. And so if, as we're trying to fix the world that is always going to be broken, we tend to minimize, marginalize, or make it more difficult for people to hear about Christ or to look at us and say, we don't want to be like those Christians because they're doing these horrible things. We have to really ask ourselves whether that sort of engagement is serving our long-term purpose. And oftentimes, and I think that, again, you know, something like First Timothy 6.1, where Paul says, listen, bond servants, you're to do this so that the word of not God will not be reviled. He does something very similar in Titus 2.5, 
where he tells the young women to act in a certain way so that the word of God will not be defiled. And so we've got to factor these things into our thinking because ultimately our job in engaging the culture is to point to Jesus Christ. And so when our actions detract from that pointing, they, they detract from or distract from who Jesus is, I think we probably need to rethink how we're engaging the culture. I, I want to talk a little bit about Serpents and Doves, your new book. Uh, sure. We will hear from, uh, in, in, this, uh, in this series, we're going to hear from well-meaning people, uh, just like a, as you've been saying, uh, Sharona Bishop and Tina Peters, who uh, were, were election officials and filed reports that elections were stolen, and they broke the law in the name of culture wars. And in some ways— that's a misrepresentation of Jesus. I think they really thought that the election was stolen. I really do believe that that people think that that that's exactly what happened. However, it's been proven that that's not the case. And so, how does that represent Christianity? Well, I think we have to. Um, I think two things. Number one, I've been using this analogy for a while now. Um, my wife and I are adopting. And so, um, but I wouldn't ever say to anyone, uh, I think all Christians should adopt. It's, it's a matter of discernment for individual families, for individual people mm -hmm. as to whether adoption is the right way for a given family or given individual to love their neighbors as themselves. Is adoption the right way for a given family to, um, meet, uh, widows and orphans in their affliction? I don't think that that's a given. I don't think every Christian family should adopt. And so I think we have to sort of apply that sort of logic and use that sort of illustration with regard to political participation. And where I see us at now, and my biggest concern, I think the underlying concern all of us should be worried about is this. Politics has taken on a givenness. In other words, it feels inevitable. It feels like we have to participate. It feels like if we don't participate, something horrible is going to happen. The apocalyptic sort of worst parts of revelation are going to occur if we if the wrong person gets voted into office. That perspective is deeply theologically problematic. And so for people to be taking action within the political realm that may or may not be opposed to Jesus Christ, I think has as its sort of underlying problematic space an elevation of the political realm beyond what God has really given it as an authority. And so God delegates authority to the political realm. If we are willing to give the political realm more authority than God has already given it, we are making a categorical mistake. And so I think that as we look at this, part of what we're seeing is uh, not individual acts. We could evaluate individual acts all day. But what I think we need to be careful of is the underlying sort of imagination, the way we situate the political in regard to the church. And oftentimes what I see people doing is they continue to say, yes, the church has power, but we really need to leverage politics here. The church has power, but we really need to be involved in X, Y, Z. And the reality is, I think we can just stop as the church has power. And when we lean into the power that the church has, when we lean into discipleship and we trust that God will do things through discipleship to build his kingdom beyond anything we can ask or think, we really have no other option than to engage in discipleship. And I know some people are saying, well, we do engage in discipleship, but I would argue that the research suggests that we don't. 
The research suggests that discipleship is minimized in the church today, that there are at least 30% of Christians who have no interest or no connection to any discipleship ministry. That's a third of the church. And, you know, I think many more Christians are inundated with political messages and more concerned with who is going to be elected president than they are with finding a deep discipleship relationship that will help us all learn to observe all Christ commanded. And so this is not a dichotomy. It's not to say you have to be discipled and then you can participate in politics. That's not it. It's just a gut check on where are we really ordering our priorities and how how does that ordering suggest that we are thinking about where God fits within the context of our lives. And then uh, you have to also say, what is your uh, definition of discipleship? You know, it's uh, uh, between uh, being as cunning as serpents and as innocent as doves. I mean, that's there's a very thin line there. There is, but I think these two have to go together. I mean, this is part of what I argue in the book, is that being wise as serpents and innocent as doves is actually not as far apart as you'd think. And so um, being wise as a serpent, I think, is navigating the world's structures in ways that will uh, allow us to continue to live and witness to Jesus Christ. Um, we have to understand how the, the power structures of the world work so that we don't get caught in the gears. We have to, as, as Jesus says, beware of men, beware of those who will betray us, beware of those who will flog us in the synagogues, beware of those who will turn us over to authorities because we're Christians. That's what being wise is about. Be about being wary of the world and its systems, knowing that ultimately they are undependable and they're undependable for a number of reasons. Innocent as doves, I think, speaks to the idea that we understand that evil. We understand the disorder. We understand that um, the world is untrustworthy, but we don't have a participatory knowledge of it. In other words, we don't experience it. We don't dive into it. Right. Um, Probably the easiest way to underscore this is to say, you know, do I know what the concept of, let's say, pornography is? Sure. Do I experientially know pornography? No. That's the distinction. We're not participating in it. We understand what it is. We know what it is, but we're innocent of it. And so that to me is what Jesus is trying to get across in this idea of serpents and doves is understand the system so that you can navigate them, but don't become intertwined in them and participate in them, participate in their evil as if this is going to do anything, uh, because these systems are, as I said, undependable. And so within the context of Matthew 10, where, um, where the serpents and doves appears, Jesus is really trying to teach his disciples to be dependent on God. Be dependent on God. Be dependent on those who accept the gospel message. Trust the Holy Spirit to bring the words to them as they stand before the governing authorities to whom they are to bear witness. And so the context really is dependence. The clip that you heard uh, was from Ari Shapiro and John Ronston. Uh, It's from NPR and All Things Considered. It's a piece called The History of the Culture Wars from abortion to school boards. When we come back, some culture clips from professor and author Nancy Piercy on useful conversations. Culture war, its origins and its effects on humanity. I'm Richard Arnold Beatty, and for Dr. James Spencer, we'll see you next week.
the, the technical term is social contract theory. Social contract theory was the idea that um, it, there, it was during the early modern era when social philosophers, political philosophers, were trying to find an alternative to Christianity as the basis for modern culture. These were guys who were, you know, out to, you know, get rid of Christianity and form a new basis. Well, you know, up until then, the basis of our social institutions was covenant, not just marriage, but obviously church and even the state. You know, God had God had established the, the state, and we obey God by obeying the state. So, uh, and this, and it was God's principles of justice and fairness and right. You know, what's right versus what's wrong that was the foundation for politics. And so it was a big job to see, can we kick God out of politics? And the early modern thinkers, we're talking about Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. And what they did yeah. is they said, let's just suppose that uh, society, human society began not in the Garden of Eden, but in a state of nature. And in the state of nature, which was obviously a substitute for the Garden of Eden, uh, Humans had no social relationships. There was no marriage. There was no state. There was no civil society. People are running around under the trees as autonomous, disconnected, uh, independent individuals. And then the state is formed when these individuals come together and form a contract, you know, an agreement. So there's nothing organically connecting people. It's all choice. Here's how one uh, political philosopher puts it. Liberalism at the heart is a claim that we can have no obligations to which we have not consented. So consent yeah. makes it every, everything. Now, on the one hand, that doesn't seem so bad in politics, consent of the governed. But the, the attitude of contract then permeated all of our social institutions so that, you know, marriage is now treated mostly as a contract. Co what's the difference? You know, a covenant is where two people, you know, unite their lives. A contract is what an exchange of goods and services, you know, and it lasts yeah. only as long as it's benefiting me. And so a lot of people do treat marriage like, well, as long as I'm happy, but if I'm not, I'm out. And even abortion, our abortion law is based on the notion that the, the mother is not organically connected to the child, <laughs> that she has the right to you know, consent or not consent. Right? It's social contract theory. And that's how our, our laws about abortion are, that's how they're framed. So even something as intimate as, you know, you grow a baby inside of you, if you're a woman, yeah. um, that that is not considered an organic uh, relationship. In my book, Love Thy Body, I actually quote some li liberal uh, philosophers who say, the fetus is an intruder. It's like my private, this is my private property. And the fetus is an intruder and I can drive him off if I want, even to the point of killing him. It's, it's a matter of self-defense. So that, that is, yeah. that's how deeply has permeating uh, the, the American society. And I think even a lot of Christians kind of treat marriage that way as well. That's coming up next time on Culture War, its origins and its effect on humanity. That's coming up on Useful to God. Go to usefultogod.com.